Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I have a quote in the, in the front of the CES letter, um, and I consider that to be a foundational quote of what has happened for me personally in the last four years and, and the spirit of the CS letter. And the quote is from a, um, he, he was a high-ranking leader of the church back in the 50s and 60s. It was J. Ruben Clark. He said, if we have the truth, it cannot be harmed by investigation. If we have not the truth, it ought to be harmed. To me, that's, that's the spirit of the Mormonism that I grew up with, grew up in. It was the spirit of to seek truth wherever it is found, not to be afraid of inquiring and, and, and questioning. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell and I'm your host. This is episode 40 and it's been a couple weeks uh, since I've spoken to you and I apologize for that. I, uh, if you've listened to the podcast regularly or follow me on social media, you'll know I have a new job at Iron Triangle Brewing, which is a ton of fun and I'm learning a lot, but it's been quite time consuming and it's taken me a little while to adjust to this new schedule. So I'm, uh, I'm getting my act together though. And, uh, I have every intention of, uh, bringing you one, one podcast a week, if not two. And I've got a couple uh, in the can right now that I'm excited to share with you. Um, I recorded with a member of our community named Rachel the other day, and I'm going to put that out in a couple of weeks. Uh, I have a recording uh, ready to go with uh, my friend BJ, who lives in New York City, uh, that's been uh, in my hard drive for a while. And so there's a couple of great episodes on the way. I'm reading some great books right now that I'm looking forward to uh, uh, sharing with you, an interview with the author. Uh, all of this is uh, in the front of my mind, uh, but I'm also trying to uh, get used to a new job. So uh, I appreciate your patience. It's been, um, it's been a good transition for me, an important transition uh, to allow me to... Uh, more adequately pay my bills, I guess is the right way to say it. So, so thanks for all of your support. Um, especially a huge shout out to those of you that are, uh, Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for, um, the investment of your, uh, finances of any, uh, any size. It all helps so much, uh, in, in helping me meet my obligations and be able to take this time 
to um, to bring you this podcast every week. And we've had a little gap uh, in the beginning of the summer, but I, I have every intention of bringing you at least one, if not two, podcasts a week uh, going forward. So thanks for your patience uh, and your understanding and your support. It means the world to me. Thank you so much. Today, I have a really great conversation with a new friend of mine, Jeremy Runnels. Uh, some of you that listen to Mormon Stories podcast with John DeLynn uh, have definitely heard of Jeremy. Uh, John has done a lot of work with Jeremy, recording conversations with him, supporting him in um, the transition that you're about to hear about in his life. Uh, Jeremy is a native of Southern California, though he lives in Salt Lake City area now. Uh, he grew up reaching all the Mormon milestones in his life. He served a mission in New York City. He got married in the San Diego Temple and graduated from BYU. That's Brigham Young University. In 2012, however, Jeremy had an awakening to the LDS Church's truth crisis. In response to Jeremy's awakening, uh, a church educational system director, that's the CES director, church educational system, this man asked Jeremy to write him in 2013 to share his concerns and questions about the LDS historical and doctrinal inconsistencies and problems that Jeremy was having. So he did that. He, he wrote a long letter, which has now become known as the CES letter, and not too long ago really went viral, not only in the Mormon community, but in the wider public as well. This all came to a head in 2016, just a few months ago in April, uh, the LDS Church attempted to excommunicate Jeremy for apostasy relating to this CES letter. The problem is that there were three years of silence from the CES director, uh, and after over a year of consistent refusal from his stake president, Mark Ivins, to answer Jeremy's reasonable questions, Jeremy made the decision during his disciplinary council in April, which he refers to as a kangaroo court, to restore his own power uh, by excommunicating the church from his life rather than allowing the church to excommunicate him, which I thought uh, at the time I read about that in April and then after talking to him now, a really brilliant move on his part to, as he says, reclaim his power and make the decision for himself in his life. Um, I'm going to put all the links to the CES letter and some news stories about Jeremy and his excommunicating uh, the church in the show notes. Uh, you can find them there and on the website at lifeaftergod.org. Also, anything else you want to learn about Life After God, you can find it at lifeaftergod.org, as well as uh, our social media pages. We're very active on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and you can follow us um, at our social media links, all of which can be found at the website. So thanks again for tuning in uh, to this show. I'm excited to jump right into this conversation with Jeremy. I hope you enjoy it. Jeremy, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Yeah, it's a great uh, great pleasure to have you on. And uh, I have been following your story off and on uh, since... Uh, you wrote the, the CES letter, which we'll uh, talk about in just a minute and explain for those that don't know what that is. But uh, just over a month ago, man, your life has been a little bit upside down for the last little while. Just over a month ago, you resigned your membership quite dramatically 
in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So uh, we're going to get into all of that and kind of the how that all blew up. But before we do, take us back to when you were a young person. And uh, I, always, I always try to... I always ask people, tell me about your earliest religious memories. Uh, were they you know, happy, uh, troublesome, um, just, you know, if you're anything like me, and I suspect this might be a similar similarity, you just grew up in religion and, and in the Mormon church and it was your normal, um, but maybe not. So tell us, tell us how you came to be a Mormon and what those early memories are like for you. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I had a really happy childhood. Um, and my upbringing in the ODS church was uh, a net positive. Um, my earliest experience in the church, I think I would point to my baptism. Uh, I was baptized by my father when I was eight years old. Oh, wow. And I remember that day, uh, which is not unusual for, for many Mormons to remember their baptism at eight years old. Um so I, I just remember, you know, it was a happy day uh, coming out of the waters of baptism and feeling different. Um, uh, you know, just the narrative at, at that time was that I was doing something really special. And, you know, I was doing something that was pleasing, you know, my, my Heavenly Father. And so I, that's probably a, 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 a key religious uh, memory in my childhood. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't converted to the LDS church back then. Uh, I still went to church, you know, on a weekly basis and, uh, understand some, understood some basics, but I would say that my conversion to Mormonism happened in my teenage years, uh, you know, specifically around 14, Hmm. uh, 13, 14 years, uh, years old. That was when I was reading books and, um, really listening to the narrative and the, 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 the doctrine that was being taught. And uh, so, yeah, my teenage years, I, I mean, like I said, I, it was a net uh, positive experience for me in my childhood. I had great leaders, um, great young men's presidents and scoutmasters and bishops. And, um, you know, there was a sense of community, uh, just great people. Uh, I reached all the Mormon milestones. I was a deacon, teacher, priest. Um, funny thing is, I got my endowment during my senior year in high school. The the, the endowment from the temple, which is where you go to a special ceremony uh, and you receive what is called garments. So I was wearing my garments during my senior year in high school. <laughs> so. Um, and I was really looking forward to going on a mission, and I was very, in, you know, uh, excited about that. I was a full believer. I didn't, I didn't have any doubts. Uh, church was true, and uh, so yeah, I mean, I had a great, great missionary experience. I served the mission in New York City. Mm. Uh, most of my mission was either either in Manhattan or the South Bronx. Um, I really grew as a person. Uh, learned a lot over there, and I came home from my mission and went to Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Uh, and that's where I met my wife. Uh, we got married in the San Diego uh, LDS Temple. 
And so I just, I was just committed. I was in it. I was in it for the, for the rest of my life. I, I would have never imagined, um, you know, leaving the church. It was just not on my radar. So uh, it's an understatement to say that the last four years has been really <laughs> um, a deviation from the plan, a unexpected uh, turn of events. So. So when you look back to like age 14, when you sort of mark your conversion experience, what, what was it that was most, I guess, life-giving about your experience in the church? What was it that really felt right to you and drew you into um, that community? Um, the way that you are ta- taught to uh, decipher or to learn about truth is in Mormonism is to study it out in your heart and mind and to receive a witness from the spirit. Okay. So I was doing a lot of reading, reading, you know, church, uh, church approved materials, reading my scriptures during that time. Um, just starting to take my religion more seriously. Um, I think part of that was my, uh, I I experienced, you know, the first death, uh, in my family, for me personally, when my uh, maternal grandfather died. Mm. So, you know, that brought in the whole death thing. Um, just wondering, you know, what was the purpose of life and what happens when we die and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so um, I think that's what started it. And like I said, Mormons are very big on feelings. Uh, if you feel good about something, feel positive, you feel warm. Uh, inside, uh, it, it's it's the spirit telling you that that's it's true. your witness, right? When people, when Mormons refer to their witness, yeah, exactly. Um, it's the it's the, the 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 receiving the witness from the Holy Ghost, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, besides the death of my grandfather, another key event that happened was my uh, father approached. Uh, I believe it was the state president at the time to um, see about me getting a hearing blessing from what we call general authorities, which are the leaders based in Salt Lake. And uh, what happened was we um, we got a green light to have one general authority uh, give me a hearing blessing. And what does that we, mean exactly? Met, uh, it means that, like in Mormonism, we believe that we have the true priesthood, the the, the rightful, uh, legitimate authority from God to act in his name or on his behalf. Right. Uh, we don't, like, nobody else has it. The, we we kind of joke that 12-year-old boys have more power and more authority than the Pope does. <laughs> so right. So we take priesthood real, uh, seriously. So, um, so basically, you know, it's the belief that through the priesthood power, you can you know, make people whole, um, uh, you know, heal the blind, heal the sick, um, make the deaf uh, hear again, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I had a lot of faith at that time. I had a lot of faith that if I would just get this hearing blessing, that my hearing would be restored. Hmm. Um, at this time, I was wearing hearing aids in both ears. Uh, I was born hearing, and when I was about three years old, I was diagnosed with hearing loss. I had what is uh, 
what is called progressive hearing loss, mm-hmm. which means that year after year, my hearing would get progressively uh, worse. So, um, yeah, so my hearing was getting worse over the years. And, you know, as a teenager, it, it, it's a problem because, you know, social, um, you know, being social with your friends is a big part of being a teenager. And right. so I, I, was in, I was noticing that it was affecting me and it was just something that was on my mind. Um, so, yeah, so I got, uh, we, we had a meeting with this general authority to give me a hearing blessing. Uh, this was in Arcadia, California. Um, I, I grew up in California, so we just uh, went over there and mm-hmm. met with this general authority. And uh, he gave me a hearing blessing. And in that hearing blessing, he promised that my ears would be unstopped and that my hearing would be restored. And, uh, you know, I shit you not, like, I, I, I expected to put my hearing ears away and that I was going to hear with, you know, that day, that, that week. Um, that was your faith to, but, that that would happen, right? Oh, yeah. Like I said, I took this seriously. I mean, I had, I had faith and I really believed that it was going to happen. And unfortunately, the hours turned into, you know, a day, a day, days turned into a week, uh, weeks turned into a month, and months turned into years. And uh, not only did it not happen, but my hearing continued to progressively get worse. Uh, But despite this, I still held on to the faith and believed that someday it was going to be restored. Um, It's, you know, it's on God's timetable. Uh, He knows uh, more than I do. And I just have to trust that it's going to all go go according to plan. Well, uh, so, so I guess I can talk about that later. But basically, um, in that meeting, when I got my hearing blessing, uh, we were sitting in a lobby waiting for the general authority to come out of another meeting. And when he came out, he stood at the doorway and, you know, kind of waved at us to come over to him. And as I came over to him and shook his hand, I felt this this uh feeling that was just really crazy um and i interpreted that feeling to be the holy ghost telling me that you know this man is important and he has the priesthood of god and that you know consequential like uh you know with that train of logic the church is true and joseph smith was a true prophet and the book of mormon is true you know, like you just connect these dots, this this train, um, because if this is true, then that's true, and then that's true, and so on and so forth. Um, so that that experience was extremely powerful in my conversion experience, and I would say that it was a foundation that I based my belief and testimony of Mormonism for, you know, from moving forward from that day. Even though nothing happened, it was still interpreted by you in your faith framework as something powerful because you felt something. Is that right? That's right. And it, it, it's, it's uh, like I, like, as I mentioned, I read all this stuff. I read about, you know, the first vision and how the Book of Mormon came to be and so on and so forth. That was the intellectual side. And then this meeting and shaking his hand and feeling this feeling that I interpreted as the witness of the Holy Ghost there was the spiritual, emotional side, and so it kind of locked in all of these different um, elements that ultimately formed my Mormon testimony. Wow. Did you ever have a chance to ask this man or someone else later 
you know, what their explanation it was that in all of these years your your hearing hasn't improved. In fact, it's it's gotten a little bit worse. Um, I haven't. And by the way, the man that did this, uh, very nice guy. Um, no problem with him. I actually ran into him again, maybe oh two three years later after I got my hearing blessing mm. when I went up to Salt Lake for a general conference. Uh, this was in the tabernacle before they moved it over to the conference center. But um, I, uh, after general conference was over, I went up to him and shook his hand, and you know he asked me how I was doing. And but we never, I never, you know, we didn't go into that. We just, you know, just didn't talk about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. My understanding right now, he he's actually the legal counsel for the LDS Church. He's basically the church's. Uh, top lawyer or wow. attorney. Huh. Yeah, and he's uh, also what they call emeritus, uh, which means that he was released as a general authority. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, I never talked to him about it, but I did meet with him, you know, uh, once again, two or three years after the hearing blessing in Salt Lake. But it was a very short, brief, huh. uh, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. See you later type thing. Right. So, so you you do your mission in Manhattan and in the Bronx in during college, right? Is it, is that a segment out of college or after? Um, it was before college. Oh, before so I was okay. nineteen when I took off, and I came back when I was twenty one. And so, what what's that? What was that like for you? Like, I mean, were you what most of us imagine? You know, with a, a black tie and a bicycle and going around door to door, knocking on doors. Um. What I imagine going into it and what actually happened is night and day. Hmm. Um, it was an extremely humbling experience. Um, I grew up in Orange County, California, and so I had, I, I, you know, I, I had a good childhood. It, it was somewhat, somewhat of a bubble. Right. Um, and to go from that and being dropped into the South Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just I just have this mental picture, but it's it's like, yeah, I I got you. <laughs> it, it was really a humbling experience. Um it just kind of kicked my ass and said, "Hey, you're not as important as you think you are." Huh, you're wow. just a little snot kid. Um That's an important it, lesson it, in life, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and so, but just the poverty and and it, I mean, going to some people's homes and seeing that they had like an open can of soup in the refrigerator and that's it. Wow. Um, you know, just just the unbelievable poverty in the Bronx. And then, you know, like taking a step higher with the whole mission experience, including Manhattan, where I've seen, you know, great wealth. Um, I've been into really amazing, luxurious apartments and so forth. Right. In uh, New York, is just a melting pot. It's really true that there's just people from all over the world and all right. kinds of cultures, and so just being exposed to all that was really a humbling, eye-opening experience. I came home just a, a different person. Um, mm. Just, just my paradigm of life completely changed. How did your view of your faith change? Did it? Did it, how did it affect your, not just your beliefs, but your feeling about being? A Mormon. Um, I still believed. I uh, didn't have doubts, but it changed my. Um, it, I would say before my mission, I was a little bit more 
I, 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 I wasn't cocky, but I had this kind of smugness. You know, I had to, uh, look, I'm special because, you know, I was preordained in the pre-existence because to, to be born into the one truth, the one true religion. And, um, you know, to I have something special that other people don't. And so it, it whether or not it's, uh, Mormons intend this, it, it does make them kind of smug in their beliefs and makes them think that they're to one degree or another better than other people, that they have something that other people don't. I think it put a dent on that. It, it made me realize that um, even though I'm fortunate to know the truth, I'm not, uh, I'm not so great. I'm not like it took away that smugness. I think it mm-hmm. just humbled me a lot. Uh, just yeah. seeing the diversity, and I think it, it it was probably the start of putting things on my shelf. But I didn't realize what a shelf was, or that I had things on my shelf. It was more of a subconscious starting, like the water was starting to boil, hmm. so to speak. That that would later uh, surface, I guess. But yeah, it definitely changed me. It definitely changed how I saw. Mormonism and how I saw myself, but but it wasn't like, you know, I I, I didn't even know that I like it, you know like it's one of those things like there's things that you don't know that you don't know. It's right. like one of those things I didn't know that there was a shelf and things were happening. It was just more of a subconscious type thing, I think. So today you're no longer a part of the LDS Church, um, and uh, I definitely want to have you tell that story but maybe you could start by saying when maybe you first had that oh shit moment when you thought oh this doesn't make any sense um i would say that uh in 2012 i uh you know church is true and i was just continuing on my mormon path that i it's so recent you know yeah, it's about four years ago. Yeah. So uh, I, re- I came across an article, and it was called uh, Mormons Besieged by the Modern Age. And uh, in that article, they talked about, the uh, at the time, the LDS church historian. Uh, his name is Marlon K. Jensen. And uh, he did a Q&A at Utah State University. And one of the questions that was asked um, was what the church was doing about the drove of individuals that were leaving the church over Google. In other words, people searching for Google and finding out information about the church's history and doctrinal inconsistencies and so forth, uh, a lot of people are leaving. So the the church was keeping these things down and, and quiet that people couldn't access them until they could have access to the Internet themselves and just look for it themselves? Oh, Yeah. Um, there's a saying that what the what the printing press was the, was to the Catholic Church, the internet is to the Mormon Church. So, what the internet has done to Mormonism is just unbelievable, and we're still in the middle of history right now. Um, like the, the, there's the internet back in you know the early days in 2000, but what the what has happened in the last seven eight years with social media has really taken it to a whole new level hmm. and ha- has caused, like, has really accelerated um, what the, the exodus, the 
the decline, the, the, the number of members leaving the church. And, uh, and Elder Marlon K. Jensen, the church historian, in answer to that question in the Q&A, uh, he said, we are experiencing an apostasy not seen since Kirtland. And Kirtland was a city um, where the early saints and Joseph Smith were in, and they had a, a crisis back in you know 1838 with the Kirtland Banking Society. Um, it was basically, it was basically a, a banking fraud and it was really bad. Like apostles, like, you know, a lot of apostles took off and so forth. And so it was a really bad time for the, for the Mormon church, for Mormonism back then. Um, so to compare to that, um, in my mind, it blew my mind, huh. uh, yeah. because I, I just didn't understand why people were leaving over history. I just thought history was nice and clean because I trusted and believed what the church, the church's narrative and what they were telling me about the history. Right. And what are the rough demographics of, of people leaving the church? Uh, millennials, uh, teenagers, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, and some 40-somethings. Hmm. Um I mean, I'm noticing more and more baby boomers are awakening, so to speak, because there's children and grandchildren are bringing, not grand, well, not grandchildren, well, whatever, just children mainly are yeah. bringing, uh, are like, are, are you know, telling them that they're leaving the church and they're leaving because of X, Y, and Z. So, but but it's mostly the millennials and some of the generation generation X. Um, and is it a individual. sharp decline? Is it like a steep line going down, like the church is losing um, members? We, I mean, it appears that it's 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 a it appears that it's a sharp. We don't know how sharp. We don't have exact numbers because the LDS Church doesn't release resignation numbers, <laughs> um, so we kind of have to. <laughs> like they're happy to tell you every single other number, sure. but they don't tell you the resignation. So, but we can kind of. See, like we're seeing um, other other evidence, ev- other evidences of this happening. So one of the examples was Elder Mark, the you know Je- Elder Jensen, when he uh, made that statement that we're experiencing an apostasy not seen not seen since Curling, right? Which is pretty bad. But then you know, uh, not too long after that, the church made a new policy change where they lowered the missionary ages. So it used to be that you had to wait until you're 19 years old for males to leave on a mission. They lowered that to 18. And oh, okay. it used to be for 21, uh, 21 years old for females, and they lowered that to 19. And uh, so that was another um, indication that, you know, they're going after the, the young, you know, the younger generation, um, try to get them before – you know, they can go off to college and have that one year before they go on a mission and prevent them from Googling, so to speak. So, um, <laughs> and, you know, just seeing the, the, the rise, of, I mean, we're seeing more and more people joining uh, forums and ex-Mormon, you know, ex-Mormon forums and st- uh, Facebook groups online. And um, it's just, uh, and we're also, another thing that's showing that things are getting bad is, it used to be unheard of to, to hear stuff like doubt your doubts oh, in yeah. general conference <laughs> and, um, you know, stay in the boat and um, just all this stuff where they're, they're kind of, where they're telling people to 
uh, just hold on and don't look at anti-Mormon stuff. And um, and they, they're doing this in general conference, which is really surprising. We're seeing firesides uh, where some apostles are giving tantrums. One of them is Elder Holland. He had a tantrum and I, I believe it was in Tucson, Arizona, where he said, you know, I'm really furious that people are leaving the church and just saying, you know, weird stuff like, you know, um, taffy pole and like the, the, how they're painting apostates, so to speak, like so-called apostates or people that leave the church, how they're trying to paint them as, um, you know, people to avoid or, or not listen to, or it, it's just a really interesting time that we're experiencing now with mm-hmm. the rhetoric and the, the, um, you know, what they're saying in general conference and firesides and, I was also told by some other people that who are still active in the church that it seems like every Sunday there's always something about doubt. Hmm. You know, somebody goes up to share their testimony about how their loved one or family member or friend uh, left the church and how they feel about that. And there's a lesson here and there about, you know, doubting your doubts. And so it's, it's really it's a really interesting uh, time right now for Mormonism. So what happened to you then in 2012 when you first started feeling those doubts for yourself? What what was the impetus for that or what was the moment that you can look back to and say that's where it all started? Um I would say that like when I read that article um and I found out that it was, you know, people are leaving over history, my first question was, well, why are they leaving over history? What's wrong with history? So I <laughs> yeah. pulled up Google. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I typed in uh, uh, one of the article mentioned Joseph Smith's polygamy. So I typed in something about Joseph Smith's polygamy and read about his polygamy. And I came across uh, something called polyandry and polyandry is where, you know, uh, in this case, Joseph Smith married other living men's wives. Hmm. And that just fucking blew my mind. Yeah. Like that just, (laughs) Like, I just thought it was just Joseph Smith and Emma. I mean, I knew that we, you know, I knew about polygamy from Brigham Young on, and I understood, you know, you know, we had the practice polygamy in Utah and all that stuff. But to me, it was just Joseph Smith and Emma. That was the narrative, right? That the church correlated narrative that I was taught growing up. So just so to find out that not only Joseph Smith was a polygamist, but that he was involved in polyandry just blew my mind. Um, and what was the church's about, response I mean, to that? Well, I mean, do they have an official, like, did they just say, no, that's not true, that didn't happen? Or They, they released an essay about two years later, uh, in 2014, I believe it was, uh-huh. uh, called The Kirtland and Nauvoo Polygamy. And, uh, yeah, they talked about that. Um, basically, what some apologists uh, try to do is they try to claim that it was a dynastic ceiling. In other words, it was just spiritual marriages that um, there wasn't, you know, really any sexual, uh, okay. um, you know, relationship or anything like that. Yeah. But the historical record shows otherwise. There was um, – it was – I mean – with one person, for example, Sylvia Sessions, um, a lot of apologists and historians agree that she did indeed have a child with Joseph Smith. 
and she it was a polyandrous marriage she was married to to another latter-day saint wow. so it, it's really nasty down there with, with all the polyandry and all the child brides he, he married 14 year olds and um it was not acceptable or normal back then even even you know, even though some apologists have tried to try to claim that the church's essay, uh, which is funny, they 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 admit these things. They admit that Joseph Smith married, a, a, you know, fourteen year olds. Right. But in in the essay, they said they instead of saying that the girl was fourteen, they say that she was just a few months shy of her fifteenth birthday. <laughs> as if that makes it better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As, as fifteen is not so bad as fourteen. Right. Phew. <laughs> Boy, that was close. Oh my goodness. Um, so, so you start looking into that, and you know your mind's blown, right? That that Joseph Smith, this holy, and not just a holy man, but a man divinely inspired by God, and and not just divinely inspired by God, but the divinely inspired by God to inaugurate and lead the one true church um and then so does it just kind of cascade from there from the polygamy and polyandry and then it's just like like dominoes falling or what what happened next well i mean with judge smith i i didn't see him as a perfect man and most mormons don't see him as a perfect man they see him as a human being yeah. uh, that did make mistakes but at the same time we also do stuff like we sing praise to the man in in church um which is a hymn we are in the scripture that um, talks about that he did more work, save Jesus only for the salvation of man. So we kind of put him up there, but we also try to say, well, he's not a God. He was just a, he was just a really good man. So that was the narrative. That was the story that I, you know, had, had in mind with Joseph Smith. So when I came across all this polyandry stuff and him marrying 14 year olds and other teen brides, um, it really put a dent on how I saw him. Um, and that just got worse and worse over the years, and significantly worse as I went deeper and deeper in the rabbit hole of polygamy and all this other stuff. It's really a rabbit hole. It really gets it gets crazier and crazier and crazier. I know historians that have been doing studying Mormonism for, you know, 20 years, and they they, they still find out you know, stuff that blows their mind. Huh. It's really a fascinating subject. Um, so, yeah, it, it was, uh, like you mentioned, a dominoes uh, falling type thing. After I looked into the polygamy and polyandry stuff, um, I went over to the Book of, ba- Book of Abraham. And the Book of Abraham blew my mind. Um, one of the key things in Mormonism is the claim, Joseph Smith's claim that he translated um, because you know the book of book of, the, the the story with the Book of Mormon, for example, is that Joseph Smith took gold plates and that he translated what was on the gold plates into what we now know as the Book of uh, the Book of Mormon. So it was um, so the 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 Book of Abraham the Book of Abraham really is a um, uh, an insight to the claim of translation. And it's a really uh, fascinating insight into Joseph Smith's uh, modus operandi. Is that also written we, by Joseph we, Smith? Yeah, like it, it was. He claimed that he 
translated that. It was a little translation from okay. Egypt, uh, from papyrus. Oh, right, right. Um, and, you know, the, the Egyptian stuff. And the, the, the evidence is so damning that the church, I mean, the church has taught for most of its history that it was a little translation from, from papyrus and we have the facsimiles. Facsimiles are basically uh, copies of pictures of um, Egypt, Egypt, uh, Egyptian, you know, graphics and stuff. And Joseph Smith actually translated, you know, this and this and that and this in these graphics. Right. And those are put in the scripture, the book of Abraham. So the evidence is so damning and so bad uh, against Joseph Smith's claims and the LDS Church's claims that the church in this book of Abraham essay that it released within the last couple of years um, has put forth a um, what they call a catalyst uh, theory, which is Joseph Smith. It wasn't a, it wasn't a literal translation like we taught guys. Um, you know, perhaps Joseph Smith just touched the papyrus and he received a revelation. Uh-huh. And that revelation is what became the book of Abraham. So, it, so what they're trying to do is that they're trying to get away from the physical and going into the meta, metaphysical so right. that they can get away with it. And it's really, uh, uh, it's really bizarre. So it's like moving the goalposts all the time. It's not what you thought it exactly. was. Exactly, and, and a lot of that is happening. Yeah. So then, what? I mean, you're you're experiencing all of this like major cognitive dissonance, right? Like your whole house of cards that you've been taught and believed, and even went out on mission to you know proclaim to the world. It's just crumbling right before your eyes. Yeah. It, it, it. I remember that moment staring into the abyss. Hmm. And what I mean by that was uh, after looking to, looking into this stuff, but not looking into it deep enough to conclude that the church is not true, right. but looking at it enough to know, holy shit, something's wrong here. And I'm not sure exactly what it is, but something is just wrong here. And it's looking at that abyss and making that decision on whether or not you're going to jump into it and mm-hmm. go for it and research and just, just hope that you're going to turn out okay on the other side. Yeah. And it's an extremely, <laughs> it's an extremely scary thing to look into. You just don't know what's going to happen when you make that step, that leap of faith, ironically. Yeah. Um, and so I uh, when I stared at that abyss, it it scared me. So I turned around and put everything on the shelf and stopped uh, stopped researching for probably about a month or two. Oh wow! I was just scared to look at it. Huh. <laughs> so during that month and two, I month or two, I just couldn't uh, like I uh, the cognitive dissonance was was heavy. Like yeah, um, it it just gnawed at me. It just ate ate me inside. I just uh, I lost, I lost sleep. I, um, it just really, uh, it was just heavy. So after about a month or two of that, I, um, I said, you know, this is not sustainable. I can't keep doing this for the rest of my life. So I made the decision to just jump into the abyss hmm. and I started doing research. I ordered books on Amazon and just, uh, just research. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. And, uh, you know, 
it really it, it really is a rabbit hole that just it's just completely mind blowing. Is that where the CES letter ended up coming from? Um, so the CES, so this is 2012, uh, starting about February 2012, and then I, you know, um, I just researched from then on. Where the CES letter came from was in the summer of 2012. I basically came out to my family, to my uh, grandfather and my dad, and so you know, my brothers and so on, my, my sister and all my family members, and. Um, my grandfather was disturbed by my loss of faith. And uh, uh, so he basically, uh, bless his heart, he tried to uh, rescue me. And so part of that rescue was to um, introduce his CES director friend into the equation. Uh, CES stands for Church Educational System. Okay. Um, so it's basically the side of the church that does, you know, um, that teaches members about church history and doctrine and so on and so forth. And so he was friends with the church, uh, with the CES director. And uh, so my grandfather asked me if I would be open to talking with the CES director in hopes of resolving my concerns and doubts. Uh, this was in April of 2013, so about a year after my, um, I hate to use the term crisis of faith because I think it sounds disempowering so yeah. I, I like to say awakening to the church's truth crisis okay yeah it's the <laughs> and, church's um, crisis more than yours right exactly so it was about a year after my awakening to the church's truth crisis and um during that year most of uh, i've researched a bunch of different stuff online and um offline and part of that research included what included um what I call the pet theories of unofficial uh, Mormon apologists. Hmm. In other words, they're just regular guys that are sharing their opinions and pet theories, which are not backed officially by the church. Okay. So it's no more official than the crazy old guy that you see in church every Sunday that everybody rolls their eyes to. Right. Um, and so I, I researched research what they had to say. And these are guys like fair Mormon and, um, you know, just guys like that, organizations like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, I was just really frustrated and flabbergasted with what they were saying. And it, it was just, it, they were not resolving my concerns. They were not answering the questions. So to have the CES director email me and say, hey, um, I'm a friend of your grandfather. I want to help lay out your concerns and questions on the table and let's see what we can do. To be able to have that was a breath of fresh air. It was, it was um, my opportunity to get official answers from the church, mm-hmm. not unofficial pet theories from unofficial Mormon apologists, but official answers from a from an official representative of the LDS Church. So I was really excited about that opportunity, and um, I I wanted to take full advantage of this opportunity. I didn't want to just give them one or two of my concerns while I had 20, 30 other other concerns. Um, And part of my background as a deaf individual, writing has always come naturally to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I consider it my language. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can write something real quick. I I mean, to some people, 80 pages, uh, 85 pages, which was the CES letter. Um, it's not difficult for me. I mean, I can do that relatively quickly. So I decided to just go for it. 
and list all my concerns and questions in that document for the CES director. And so I attached it, let's say there's a PDF and I attached that PDF to an email and sent it over to the CES director. He actually read it and uh, got back to me and said that it was a very well-written document, uh, almost like a thesis. And that he, um, that the concerns that I shared in the CES letter, some of the, some of those concerns were also concerns that the brethren had. And to those that are outside of Mormonism, brethren sounds really culty, but in Mormonism, when we say the brethren, we're referring to, you know, the first presidency and the quorum of a 12, which Mormons consider prophets, seers, and revelators. So it was really uh, eye-opening for him to share that, to, to share that these are concerns that the brethren have as well. Um, so, yeah, he said that he would get back to me, and uh, unfortunately, he never get, got back to me. Um, that was three years ago. I never heard back from him again. Ever again? Never again. Wow. And so even after you've like gone through all this media exposure and everything he's just still just never and this is still your grandfather's friend yeah he was my grandfather's friend and my grandfather at the time when he was in his 80s i was not interested in him reading the cs letter or getting involved in it right. i just wanted him to you know what i mean yeah like he just leave him out of this so but yeah he never got to, back to me some there are some mormon apologists that made the claim well jeremy's far gone he Nothing the CES director will say will will get him back, you know, get him back in. Well, where's their um, faith that's now? Not the I mean, if they're, I'm sorry, what? I said, where is their faith now? You know that you're so far gone, even God can't bring you back. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the, my 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 response to that was that's not the, the the CES director said that he would get back to me, right? And so it, it it's you know. The the, the 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 decent thing to do is to get back to me like you said he would. Right. If he wasn't going to get back to me or he changed his mind, then the decent thing to do was to say, hey, I, I know I told you that I was going to get back to you, but I changed my decision. But none of that ever happened. He just completely went off the radar. And the other thing is that this document went viral on the Internet. So it was no longer just about Jeremy Runnels. It's about all these other thousands of people that also share the same concerns and questions. And how did that I happen? Mean, how did the, how did the document end up like being so public? Um, so in the course of writing this document before I sent it to the CES director, um, I shared it with in, in closed Facebook group and on Reddit, um, ex Mormon subreddit. Um, I shared it with them to get feedback and to make sure that things were tight, um, you mm -hmm. know, from, um, you know, the problems and doctrinal stuff and as well as grammar, because I just didn't want to waste his time. I just wanted a tight document so that I can get a tight answer, so sure. to speak. Yeah. Um, so the people that were giving me, the friends and pe the individuals that were giving me feedback, uh, apparently they liked it enough to share it with their family and friends. And then it just started the viral effect. Okay. There. Uh, contrary to what a lot of people think, I didn't just, you know, uh, registered domain name and put it up there and um, the website came much later after it had already gone viral um, but yeah that's how it started um, I I mean my my position has been from a defense posture so 
when the where the website and the domain came from was a few months later uh, in the summer of 2013, Fair Mormon, that unofficial Mormon apologetic group, uh, for some reason they decided that it would be a good idea to you know uh, attack me personally. Uh-huh. Um, they made some outrageous bullshit claims that I just had to respond to. So that's where the website came came from. Okay. And um, also the church was starting to release its essays, which was offering a, a an official response to some of the problems. Hmm. So I felt that from an ethical point of view that I had to include these new essay updates mm-hmm. and the links to these essays in the CES letter itself. So I figured it was a good idea to have the website not just for uh, defense to respond to these critics and Mormon apologists, but to kind of create a an official source for the document so that it included these essay updates and it was a convenience for you know people to access the updated CES letter. Okay. And then when did it start getting ugly for you where you were now threatened with excommunication? I mean, you know, it's from the, all the reports that I've read online and stuff, it it sounds to me like your, you know, your grandfather connects you to this, you know, elder in the church who's going to help you with your problems, your questions and your doubts. And the next thing is so you so you trust that process and you write this all up, and the next thing you know, you're being threatened with excommunication. Is that kind of like what um, happened? It, like, so the so my grandfather and the CS director, um, that stuff happened in April 2013. And then um, the apologists started attacking me in the summer 2013. And then my website came out um, around that time or, or in the beginning of 2014. Yeah. And in the spring of 2014, I had uh, an interview with Mormon Stories, uh, John Delenn. Oh, yes. And, he's been on the um, show. Yeah, he's awesome. I love that guy. So he, so my interview, I think, is where it took the CES letter to a whole new level. Um, for, and it did that for various reasons. But, but yeah, I did my interview with him. Uh, that's on YouTube. And... Uh, that was in, again. That was in the spring of 2014. Well, I think that's where the turning. Um, uh, no, but, like what happened was after the interview, it took things up to a whole new level in terms of traffic. A bunch more visitors, like the viral effect, uh, went to you know fourth gear. <laughs> um, in 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 the fall of 2014, which is a few months later, um, I received a call from the, uh, at the my state president and uh, he wanted me to come in you know into his church office so my first meeting with with him was on October 19th and I'd never met the guy before and so that meeting was mainly just getting to know each other and to talk about how he knew about me and um, he hadn't read the CES letters so I committed him to reading it and then we met about two weeks later and had another meeting this uh, this was all documented, um, audio recorded. Okay. I have uh-huh. um, everything on a single page. Uh, it's it's at cesletter.org okay. forward slash resign. So again, cesletter.org forward slash resign. Um, I have audio recordings and everything is 100% documented. 
But yeah, that in the fall of 2014, um, so I had two meetings with the state president. And uh, the second meeting was where things got really interesting. And I could tell that he was getting ready to take me to the church court. Hmm. But I challenged him on that. I brought up issues that the church admitted in his new church essays. Um, so I think it really, uh, I, 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 I think it really surprised him. I, I don't think he was expecting me to challenge him the way the way that the way that I did. Uh-huh. So, um, surpri- to, to my surprise, I hadn't heard from him again for about a year and a half. And so that brings us uh, brings us over to 2016. In the beginning of 2016, uh, is when I heard back from him again after a year and a half of radio silence. For a year and a half, really nothing happened. Then it's just you're just waiting. Yeah, from from that point of view, like yeah. I haven't heard from him. I mean, a lot of things happen in terms for the CES letter and it becoming more viral and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's just really weird how I didn't hear anything from him and. To go from that to basically a phone call saying, I want you to come in. And um, that phone call, I asked him why he wanted me to come in, thinking that um, he was going to answer my questions from our last meeting a year and a half earlier. Uh, but instead of it being, hey, I, got, I finally got the answer that I told you I was going to get you. It was, um, we want to hold a ch- we, we, we want you to come in so that we can discuss your membership in the church. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was just a really so, yeah, like that's just my experience with the audio church. Like the C, the CS director, hey, give me your questions and I'll, I'll, we'll get them answered. Okay, here you go. And then radio silence. Um, my second meeting with the state president in the fall of 2014. You know, my, this question, that question. Okay, uh, we'll we'll get we'll get them answered. Well, you know, let's let's uh, let's take care of this radio silence um so yeah it, so i have no doubt in my mind that um church leaders in salt lake were involved in this and they were applying pressure on the state president um this year 2016 to to basically you know get me out of the church so yeah so a lot of uh um, back and forth with the state president this year. Again, that's documented on that webpage that I just mentioned. Uh-huh. Um, again, nobody has to take my word for anything. It's all audio recorded and um, emails and email screenshots. Um, so, yeah, uh, the consistent thing with the state president um, has been that he just refused to answer my re- reasonable questions. And my reasonable questions were, uh, I had three questions. One of them was, uh, what mistakes or errors in the CES letter or on my website um, are there so that I can publicly correct them? Yeah. He refused to answer that one time. Uh, The second one was, if there are no mistakes or errors in the CES letter, why am I punished for seeking and sharing the truth? Yeah. And he, he refused to answer that one. And the third one was, what questions uh, have I asked am I being punished for? And he refused to answer that. I've asked those questions probably about 20, 25 times over the, you know, during the whole time. And not a single question was answered. So, um, yeah, so even so, even with this consistent refusal to answer those questions, uh 
he tried to hold a court on me on Valentine's Day. And so so they call these things a court of love because the idea is they're doing this out of love so that they, they so that you can be called to repentance and see the errors of your ways. Right. Well, I kept asking him, what are the errors of my ways? What what you know, like help me. Yes. Uh, if, if there are mistakes or errors, I will publicly correct them. Right. And I, I have an errors page on my website showing past mistakes that I've made in the CES letter where I corrected them. And so what's another few mistakes? A few more mistakes. Just show me them and I will publicly correct them. And uh, despite this, he still tried to hold a court on me on Valentine's Day. Um, I had a press conference with John DeLynn, uh, again, with Mormon Stories. Um, where we at the time talked about what, what, what has happened up to that point. And, uh, the, so that press conference was held on, uh, Wednesday evening, um, you know, before Valentine's day, the next morning, I got an email five o'clock in the morning from the state president saying that the court, uh, that the Valentine's day court of love has been postponed. Hmm. So I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Um, so it was postponed to May 20th and, you know, down the road that was canceled as well. Um, but, you know, it was just, it, the whole thing was just a mess from the state president's uh, actions. Like he just made one fumble, one mistake after another. Um, it, I was just really disturbed how I was treated. Uh, during this time, my grandfather, uh, my beloved grandfather, who I was very close to, he was also, by the way, he's also the, grandfather that was involved in getting the CES director involved. Yeah. Um, he was in hospice care. So, oh my. so it was basically a fuck you from the state president. We don't care that your grandfather's in hospice care. We're still moving forward and kicking you out of our VIP heaven. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he, they just didn't care about that. So, um, and he actually really was in hospice care, and, and he actually died uh, on March 8th. And, uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. I, I, I mean, it was, it was his time to go. But anyway, so um, – and then it, it was just very unchristlike um, how they did things and how they treated me. After, be, later down the road um, in April – um, I got a letter from the state president uh, announcing that they were holding a court on me on April 17th. And in that letter um, were conditions, uh, you know, like who I can have as witnesses. And um, one of the, the other conditions was that I cannot have an ASL interpreter present in the meeting. What? Yeah. So, um <laughs> And so, um, so it's just it just added insult. Like, not only did the church promise that my hearing would be restored at 14 years old, and that <laughs> hearing didn't happen. Like, it did the restoration. The, it did happen. My hearing was restored, but it was restored through science. Right. Not, yeah, I got uh, what is called cochlear implants, uh, which is basically the only technology right now that functionally restores hearing hmm. or it restores a human sense and um yeah so that that's what i mean even with cochlear implants I, I hear pretty good with cochlear implants but even with cochlear implants i still use closed captions on tvs and on the at the movie theater and um 
I use interpreters at especially at important events. Right. And I consider this a very important event. I mean, I was going to be put into a room with basically 15 guys that were very hostile toward me. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. I thought totally. it was a reasonable request to have an ASO interpreter there. Um, and, you know, I lost my hearing about six months before that uh, because I developed an infection. So, so I really was half deaf. I miss. I was missing my other cochlear implant, so mm. it wasn't. It really wasn't a, a reasonable request as a half deaf person with a cochlear implant to have an ASO interpreter present. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, if you're being like brought up on some kind of charges, you need to understand what those charges are. Exactly, and I didn't know what the fuck they were going to charge me with. I didn't. I didn't know if they were going to go the character assassination route and accuse me of child molestation. I didn't know what they were going to do. Right. Uh, like I needed to be on my A game here. Um, <laughs> so what happened then? So, um, so yeah. Uh, so I got that letter about a week, you know, a week and two days before the the court date on the seventeenth, and. Um, so what I did is I decided, you know, this is not right. So I basically put on Facebook, uh, on social media, um, a graphic or uh, a meme, um, basically this, uh, letting the world know that the state president was denying me an ASL interpreter, um, and that really pissed off a lot, <laughs> a lot of people. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I went viral. Um, so a lot of outrage. Um, and, I mean, even the news media were picking up on it, and their question was, "Is it really true that he's denying you an interpreter?" Like they just couldn't believe it. They thought they were, um, they wanted to make a story out of that alone. So what happened was, uh, after that, um, the court date came up. So I went out over to the church. Um, there was a crowd there to support me. The media was there, and so I, um. I had an interpreter, uh, so I decided that I was going to take him in with me into the church building anyway. Um, so I took him in with me, and when I went up to the state president, um, he said that my interpreter was not welcome, but that um, basically he changed his mind and that he had he now had an interpreter. So I was really pissed off at how just the hassle that he put me through and um, – you know how he blindsided me with that. It, it just, it just pissed me off. Yeah. So I just uh, so because he provided the, the because they were providing interpreter. I just I let it go and told my interpreter to, um, you know, just go back outside. So um, so yeah. So after that, the uh, state president took me into, uh, to to a door and. He tried to open that door and it was locked. So somebody inside unlocked the door and opened it. And inside were basically, you know, that what we call the high council, which is a group of twelve men. And then there was his, there were his counselors, his first counselor and the second counselor. So um, I walked in and uh, shook my shook hands with everyone and introduced myself. And they introduced themselves. Um, so that process took about five minutes. My the, the church's interpreter was not present in that room, so the, and the state president was, wasn't either. So he was out there trying to grab the 
interpreter. So it took five minutes for the interpreter to come in. So the message that I got from that was, um, it was basically his backup plan. It was not, um, you know what I mean? He wasn't going out of his way to accommodate me. The, the vibe that I got was, oh shit, he brought his interpreter and now I got to go to plan B and actually wow. grab the interpreter in the other room. Right. You know Yeah, so, yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so that interpreter came in and uh, so we started with a meeting and, you know, that's all recorded. Um, it's on that page, that web- website that I just mentioned. Um, again, nobody has to take my word on on anything they can see for themselves, um, how I was treated and how the church treats those who question and, and doubt um, or who, who have questions and who have doubts. Um, it was just extremely cold in there. I mean, I was going in there with questions. I, I mean, I had pages of questions. Um, I was I was I went in there expecting dialogue. But instead of dialogue, it was you know, 15 minutes, he presents his case and his quote unquote evidences against me. And then 45 minutes, my, my side where I say what I want to say. And then that's it. There was no, I mean, I tried over and over and like, will you answer this? Uh, Are you going to, I asked him, uh, you know, are you going to answer any questions this evening? And he said, no. Uh, It was just, I mean, to say that this is a court is laughable. And it really was, in every sense of a word, uh, a kangaroo court. And that's exactly what I called it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, he presented his case, and then I started presenting mine and talking about my experience and how I sought official answers from official church ans- uh, channels and three years of silence from the CES director and a year and a half of silence from the state president himself. And when I saw that the when I saw the kangaroo court for what it is, and they just were not going to answer any questions, um, I said what I needed to say. And then at the end of it, I basically said, you know, I, I said to their face, "This is the kangaroo court. Um, I'm done with this court. I am excommunicating the odious church. I am excommunicating you, President, and I'm excommunicating this kangaroo court." For my life. Wow. And then, I, and then I handed my resignation and walked out of the room. Before they had a chance to issue their, like, judgment or whatever. Yeah. The idea, and, and I, um, the idea is that they, um, they, they have, the, the leaders of a church have what is called a church handbook, and it's basically church protocol and um, how they should conduct, conduct meetings. He, he did not conduct it the way that it should have been conducted, but what I knew that he had 15 minutes and he gave me 45 minutes. He was very specific that I had 45 minutes. And so I knew that um, I needed to, res- if, the, if I was going to resign, it had to be, it had to happen before I was done. Um, and, and they had an opportunity to, you know, uh, dismiss me and, deliberate and so forth so so yeah i i fired them before they could fire me what was their reaction to that um he was surprised right Uh, i'm not i if i was a state president personally i would i would be relieved um because from his point of view he he was actually 
going to kick me out of Mormon VIP heaven, right? Uh, which is a big, pretty big thing. So I would imagine he was relieved that I took power in my hands and he didn't have to have that on. I, I, I'm just saying this from a point of view that I would hope that he's somewhere down there is honest and has a conscience. I think that deep down he knew that it's not it's, something's wrong if he can't answer my questions and he was willing to go all the way. Yeah. Um, so I, that's why I say that I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that the church leadership in Salt Lake was involved in this and he just had to obey his prophecies and revelators. And that's basically what happened. Yeah, it's, it's essentially sounds like damage control, you know, like your thing was getting too much attention, your your letter, all of your questions, it just wasn't going to go away. And so yeah. they either could answer your questions uh, and they knew that they didn't have adequate answers probably, or they could just, you know, excommunicate you and know that it, within a year or two, from their perspective at least, it would all blow over. Yeah, what they were hoping to do was they were hoping to put a scarlet letter. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that is the appropriate label for this situation, but they're basically hoping to put an X, like Tyler Glenn's uh, trash video, an yeah. X on my face. Um, basically, this point point to like to have them to point to in front of the members and say, "This guy right here, he's an apostate. We excommunicated him. Don't read what he has to say. It's anti-Mormon." And also, uh, don't you dare do this because this will be your fate as well. Yeah. And so that's what they were hoping to do. But what I did is I I turned the tables on them. Right. And I resigned. So, and not only that, uh, everything is documented. But they, they with the, the way that these church courts work is they want it done in secret. Yes. And it usually is done in secret. And they don't tell members or the community exactly what the charges are or what you've been excommunicated. So what they do is they leave it to the imagination of, of Mormons in the community as to why you've been excommunicated. Was it, you know, pornography, were you, adultery, you know, all these hideous sins. And everybody's imagination is going wild with that. Exactly. And so they wanted that for, for my case. They wanted to be able to say, oh, he was excommunicated. And then just leave it at that without revealing what, exactly what the charges were. And, and how do you? Just, uh, I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, I, I just didn't want that, so I I wanted to make it crystal clear, and I wanted every word heard, so that everybody can see for themselves how it went down. That's amazing. I mean, I'm sure that took a lot of courage, and I mean, your family is probably sort of upside down about it. Has that been a hardship for you as well? Kind of coping with your family's reaction to all of this. Yeah, it's been hard. Um, but, you know, again, this has been a, a drawn out process. So it wasn't like it happened overnight. I mean, this, uh, the CES letter, for example, started in April 2013. So it was about three years. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still hard. And, um, but I, I just had to do, I just had to do what was right for myself. Uh, yeah. The funny thing is, like, I grew up in a Mormonism where you do what is right while letting the consequence follow. Yeah. And ironically, what I did that day was the most Mormon thing I've ever done. Hmm. Uh, in terms of my Mormonism, the Mormonism where you just do the right thing, it's going to be hard and consequence will follow, but just do it. I felt the same way about my Seventh-day Adventism. I, I felt like 
I felt when I was, you know, stepping away from Seventh-day Adventism that I was being the most Seventh-day Adventist in a way that I had ever been, you know, standing for the truth, even though others were sort of advocating this status quo and not settling for the faith of others, but really looking for my own true, you know, the truth as I understood it from my own study and research. And their counsel was just to, as you said, be quiet, you know, don't ask so many questions. It'll all become obvious in due time. Um, and, and I was like, no, that's the kind of, that's the, you know, papalism, you know, papacy kind of thing that you're constantly saying is bad, that we need to avoid that kind of papal hierarchy that tells you what to believe. We're supposed to be like the good Bereans, you know, in Corinthians that, you know, you know, researched for themselves and found out if it was true or not. Yeah. What about those Bereans? Yeah, I, I completely relate to that. It's funny hearing that from a from somebody from a different faith tradition, but yeah, I, I completely relate to that. How do you identify yourself now? Are do you are you still like a person of like some kind of um spirituality or a different type of faith or are you an atheist? How do you how do you think of yourself? Um so when I uh when I when I lost when when Mormonism collapsed for me a few years ago, I went the deist route. Uh-huh. Uh, well, in the beginning it was Christian, um, but then when I uh, I decided to use the same set of tools that I used to examine Mormonism, uh, I applied it over to Christianity and the Bible, um, looking at the foundations of Christianity, and I just didn't like what I found down there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I so I. So I went from uh, Mormon to Christian to um, deist, mm-hmm. and I was a deist for a couple of years. Um, the, I think it took me a, a while. I, I think I was a deist for as long as I was because my focus has been mainly on Mormonism and CES letter stuff. Um, the CES letter thing still kind of kept me in Mormonism and researching it and responding to critics and apologists and so forth. Right. Um, but you know, as I got more time and I, um, started looking at things and, um, where I'm at now is I consider myself an agnostic atheist. Uh Um, agnostic is, I don't know for sure whether or not there's a God, but atheist is, I don't believe in the gods that we know of. I'm skeptical, skeptical of that. Right. Um, and uh, what what brought me there was, um, you know, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos, um, you know, with Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins and Sam Harris and, you know, the, the debates. I've read their books and Age of Reason. And, but it, not just that, just the research and the intellectual side of things. It was also realizing that the deist um, thing was based on a faith-based paradigm or a faith-based model of the world mm-hmm. uh and i realized that you know like carl sagan said uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary um evidence right and uh it just became logical that i needed to switch over to an evidence-based paradigm or evidence-based uh, model of the world 
I completely relate to that. People often ask me, you know, when you left the Seventh-day Adventist Church, why didn't you become like a liberal Christian or Unitarian? I mean, Unitarian Universalist is probably a bad example because you can be an agnostic atheist or whatever and be Unitarian Universalist. But but why didn't, you know, they would say, why didn't you just become like Episcopalian or a liberal Christian? And like you, I just, the the... The, the bottom just kept, you know, I didn't find the bottom of the well. You know, I was digging down for the bottom, like where is the solid ground? And pretty easily decided that Seventh-day Adventism was not on solid ground. But I thought there'll be some kind of Christian solid ground, and there wasn't. And then I thought, like you, I thought, well, there's kind of some spiritual connection. All the world's religions are sort of barking up the same tree, probably, right? You know, and so maybe there's kind of a vague spiritual spirituality that I could say, oh, there's the solid ground, but that sort of fell away. And I just came down to, you know, a kind of naturalism, you know, where I just thought it makes the most sense to me that this, that we have, uh, that we can understand with our senses and that we're continuing to learn about, by the way, like not that we figured it all out, obviously, but the tools of our five senses um, amplified by science and technology are the best way to interrogate the world, not through, as you said, a faith-based system, but an evidence-based system. So, I mean, my, my pattern of, of sort of thinking about these things follows yours quite closely. Yeah. And I agree with that hundred percent. Um, so three things before I forget. So one of them is, um, for me, science is personal. Um, my experience with my deaf issue, my deafness, mm-hmm. it, I went to religion I went to my faith to solve the problem, to restore my hearing, and they failed. And it was science that came in and fixed it. Right. So so basically, you know, I'd like to share a message about my Lord and Savior, science and Google and reason and you know what I mean? <laughs> the trinity of <laughs> science and reason and <laughs> Google. And Yeah, so it's personal. Like, it, it's not just my hearing, but like, um, it really has changed. It, it made my life easier in terms of like email, for example. Um, uh, like back then when I wasn't as good as I am on the phone now, um, email was a godsend to be able to communicate with the world without the need of the telephone. Wow. So it, just all these advances and um, just look at how humanity has advanced the last 400 years since we started saying, I don't, I don't know. Let's find the answer. Let's test. Uh, came up with the scientific method. So extremely powerful stuff. The other thing is you asked about why I didn't go into, you know, another Christian faith, another Christian tradition. Um, Mormonism is different in the sense that they claim to be restorationists. Right. And it was really drilled in our heads in the church that we are not those Christians. We are the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the, you know, and the father in Jesus Christ came to the prophet Joseph to restore the real Christianity, the real gospel uh, in these latter days. And uh, ironically, it gave us the tools to basically deconstruct other uh, religions (laughs) and, you know, as as a missionary in New York City, I was basically in the Salt Lake City version of Jehovah Witnesses. Right. They had their, um, you know, their headquarters in Brooklyn. Um, 
So I came across a lot of Jehovah Witnesses on my mission. One funny story is we uh, were going tracting. We had an appointment, and uh, we went up to the door of our appointment. And just as we were about to knock, uh, a, a, a group of Jehovah Witnesses missionaries came out of the elevator and came to our door. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, funny that you should knock here. So we're all like, it, it, then it became like a, a game of who stands down. And <laughs> you could be there so for we're a all long just standing time. standing there waiting for the, the damn guy to answer his door. <laughs> and <laughs> so it was really awkward. Uh, and the reason why this happened is because it was an ASL mission. Like it was a mission focused on deaf individuals. Yeah. So it was a very specific targeted thing, you know, like I went straight to that door because there's a deaf individual behind that door. And those Jehovah Witnesses missionaries um, were also deaf missionaries as well. So that's why we were standing in front of that door. It was just a really, <laughs> but um, going back to the point I was making, I, I, I mean, I had my own copy of the New World Translation and I had it marked down and I knew about the prop, failed prophecies and I knew how to approach them and and you know all that kind of stuff like yeah. it gave me the tool to deconstruct another religion and uh obviously I would never apply that tool to my own um yeah so so I didn't go to another faith another Christian religion because it was already false to me and um just just coming out of Mormonism and just seeing how like what a what an unbelievable fraud. Like it just are so ridiculously disprovable. Yeah. I just left me let just left the unbelievable bad taste in my mouth with all of the religions. Um in terms of spirituality, like I just have a hard time with this idea that there's a God that intervenes into human affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that this God is going to answer my my prayer to bless my greasy Little Caesar's Pizza, or you know, answer <laughs> answer the prayer of like the, the help Provo Jennifer find her Jetta car keys, right? While ignoring the pleas of refugees and you know poor souls in Africa and North Korea and all the children that are stuck in uh, sex trafficking like there's just so much evil in this world like it, it's an insult that god's gonna help you know pull jennifer find a jetta car keys but but annoy these people that right need help they they need their prayers answered right yeah i'm with you i mean it just it is kind of an interesting when the scales fall from your eyes you see the error of what's nearest to you, which in your case was Mormonism, in my case was Seventh-day Adventism. But as your eyes begin to adjust to the new light, you begin to see not just Mormonism for what it is, but all of it, you know, and even non-religious things. I mean, I, I my views have changed slightly about all kinds of things because my, my way of looking at the world in general has has changed and opened. So... Absolutely. And I would add to that that the real funny thing is I I found myself to be more Christ like. Interesting. Uh leaving Mormonism. Like the big thing about Christ is charity like un, uh, like loving people, like really loving them and not judging them. Yeah. And uh 
I found that I was most loving and non-judgmental. Now, um, I just accept people. I, I, I realize that they're doing the best they can with the resources they have, and they're doing the best they can with their models of the world. And I, I've never been in their shoes, and I just love them. I, I, I'm not judgmental toward them. So it's a really interesting uh, paradox that, that I've never been, again, I've never been uh, so Mormon and so Christ-like that I am. <laughs> Now it's just really funny. That is, a, that's really an interesting observation. Well, I've taken about as much time as I should from your evening. Um, in, in just in one last question, do you feel um, a kind of compulsion now to maybe compulsion is too strong of a word, but a desire to sort of, so to say, save other Mormons from from this? Do you have a a desire to reach out to people that are Mormon and try to labor with them that it's, a, you know, a fraud, as you said? Um, I did during my angry stage. Yeah, um, I, you we know, all like have one of those. Yeah, like the five stages of grief and there's <laughs> yes. the angry stage. Yes, yeah. Um, I did, but I've gotten to a point now where... Um, I realize that it's not my place to change people's lives like that. Ultimately, people change their own lives. I just speak my truth and my experience. And if that affects and change their lives, they they allow that. Um, it's not they allow it because they've, they've uh, given themselves permission to do that. They, they've made that leap of faith into the abyss. Right. And it wasn't because of me breathing down their neck or putting them in this spot. You must have dozens of people, if not hundreds of people reaching out to you to say, me too, me too, me too. Oh yeah, I get emails often. Um, I think the reason why the CS letter has resonated with the hundreds of thousands of people that it has is that my questions and my, my concerns and my story is also their questions and concerns and their story. Like, my story is not really that unique. Right. It's just that it's it's a similar story to other what others have gone through. And I think uh, you know, I, I have a talent for writing and I think I've been able to put into words in a way that resonates with people and speaks to their experience and their frustrations and their desire for truth and so on. Well, I'm sure it's an inspiration, you know, even if, you know, what I've found is that even when people don't necessarily follow my path or your path, which is, as you said so perfectly, I think, my goal is not to make people follow my path, but it, it does inspire people to have courage to ask questions. And so I'm always encouraging people, you know, you may not like the conclusions I've come to, but please don't forbid yourself from asking the questions that you have and seeking answers in your own time and in your own way. And if we come to different answers and different conclusions, that's fine. But just, you know, don't foreclose on that process, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm encouraged because I think that message really resonates with people. Like, yeah, people should, if they have a question about something, you should be able to ask it. And unlike your experience, people ought to provide their best answers and then people can decide for themselves, you know, what they ultimately believe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a quote in the, in the front of the CS letter. Um, and I consider that to be a foundational quote of what has happened for me personally in the last four years and 
and the spirit of the CS letter. And the quote is from a, um, he, he was a high ranking leader of the church. He was a counselor, the first presidency back in the 50s and 60s. But uh, it was J. Ruben Clark. He said, if we have the truth, it cannot be harmed by investigation. If we have not the truth, it ought to be harmed. That's a great quote. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, to me, that's, um, that's the spirit of the Mormonism that I grew up with, grew up in. It was the spirit of to seek truth wherever it is found, mm. um, not to be infer- not to be afraid of inquiring and and, and questioning. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking this time to share your story. It's uh, you know an unfortunate another another unfortunate tale of um, you know the church, in this case the Mormon Church. Uh, you know, acting badly. Um, but you're, it's also a story of courage on your part. And, um, you know, the, the way that, you know, things can work out. Okay. Like you're doing well, you're, you're happy, you're fulfilled, you're, you're finding new purpose in life. And, and I think that that helps people as well. So thank you just for being so open about it all. And, um, I'll put all the links to the CES letter website where they can download the CES letter and listen to any of the recordings that you referred to and read some of the news stories and so forth. So I'll, I'll link all that in the show notes. So if you're listening, you want to check more out about, about Jeremy and his story. Um, you can do that. I'll link to some news articles as well. And, uh, and a special shout out to our mutual friend, uh, John Delin for all the work that he's doing as well. And, uh, it was through John that I heard about you and, um, so it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to, to spend this, uh, 90 minutes or so talking with you tonight. Absolutely. And likewise, uh, I really appreciate this and it's been a great honor. I, I really uh, admire your work and, uh, thank you so much for having me. You bet. We'll talk again soon. All right. Take care. Jeremy Runnels, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so happy that you uh, tuned in for this conversation uh, listening to it two or three times myself, I'm just, again, impressed by Jeremy's integrity and honesty. And I love the way that he patiently followed the sort of the intellectual and emotional and spiritual process that felt right to him. You know, he had questions. And he, so he asked them and waited for a response and then asked again for some feedback, didn't get it, went to the next level. Um, was threatened by the church, accepted those threats and confronted his accusers. You know, he just, he, at, at no point in the story that I can detect at least, did he um, lash out or um, act badly. I mean, it was just, he was patient. And I think that patience in allowing your questions to come to the surface, ask them with integrity, um, confront kindly confront the people in authority um, and ask for, you know, reasonable response. Uh, this is this is a good model, I think, for anyone who is in uh, what we might call a crisis of faith or, or a crisis of, of intellectual honesty um, or spiritual uh, discovery. Um, so, and as I said to Jeremy and as we said to each other on the show, the, the expectation is not that we all end up in the same place with the same beliefs or conclusions about the world and life and religion, but that we all take the time to ask our questions um, in a way that allows us to sleep at night 
um, that allows us to make the most of our lives and uh, love well in the world and um, be healthy individuals. And uh, I, I have uh, no doubt that, that Jeremy is uh, doing well. I can, I can just tell by listening to him talk and um, talking with him that he's in a better place. And I'm grateful for that. Um, and so if you're listening to this and you're on the fence and you're not sure what to do, um, I hope that you'll follow Jeremy's example and, and maybe you know put pen to paper, sit down in front of your computer and write out your questions and um, spend some time with it. Let it sit for a few days. Come back to it. Write some more about your questions and then you know seek out the people in your life who you think might have some insight about those questions and uh, they might have reading material that they would recommend for you. And just start diving into it and see where it leads you and take it at your own speed and your own pace as you can handle it. And uh, don't let anybody shame you for not asking your questions quicker or handling them faster or asking them at all, uh, any of that stuff. This is your journey. This is your story. And I think Jeremy's uh, example really illustrates um, how that can work. So thanks again for tuning in. Thank, huge thanks to Jeremy for spending that time with with me. Thanks to John DeLynn for um, informing me about Jeremy and his story and for covering it so well on Mormon Stories. A, a quick shout out to Mormon Stories. If you haven't heard uh, the podcast, it's an uh, immensely popular show that John does. And I hope you'll check it out. Um, I'll put a link to his show as well in the, in the show notes uh, below. So that's about it for us this week. Thanks again for tuning in. You can learn more about Life After God at our website, lifeaftergod.org. We'll see you back here next week with a new episode of the show. Until then, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been Life After God. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.